Good morning. It is interesting to be here with you in this way this morning. This is my first time to do this in this setting in a basically empty building. But either way, regardless, however you're here joining us, however you're, you're joining us this morning, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for taking your time to be with us to worship together this morning. If you are a visitor here with us, if, if, if you're not a member of the Linda Road congregation and happen to be watching, whether on, on YouTube or on our Facebook channel, thank you for being here with us. But I want to ask you, if you would, to, to take the time to leave a comment. In, you can do it on YouTube or Facebook, either one. Let us know who you are, where you're from, uh, if there's anything we, we can pray about together. Just let us know who all is, is paying attention to this. To me, it's, it's just a, another great way for us to connect with each other. As you're watching this, you are more than likely in some way or another going to be celebrating Father's Day. Um, it seems a little bit awkward for me as a father to do this, but even as a father, let me join in the good wishes and say to all of our dads, to all of our dads, but in particular to those who are working every day to be great examples, pointing their kids in the right direction, pointing them toward God. Happy Father's Day. Thank you for all you do. To my dad, if you're watching this, I hope you're watching this. Happy Father's Day to you. Sure love you a bunch. Uh, whatever you do today, dads, enjoy your day with your family. I don't know what you're going to do. There's no sports to watch. So, I mean, that kind of that kind of eliminates what I usually do on Father's Day. It's my day to watch the NBA playoffs or whatever in the normal world used to be on. But I don't know what you're going to, maybe you're going to sit together with your family and, and watch a movie. If, if that's the case, let me offer you some suggestions. Uh, maybe it is that what you'd like to do is sit down and watch a scary movie. Maybe you'd like to go back to uh, a movie that really started or kind of fashioned an, an entire genre of creepy movies. Alfred Hitchcock's great movie, Wimpy. Uh, or, or maybe maybe you're an 80s person. Maybe you would rather watch uh, something funny from the 80s. In that case, let me r recommend to you uh, Spielberg's great movie, Spaceman from Pluto. Just a you know great funny movie. All, all sorts of you know that has reflected on our culture for years ever since. Or maybe you want to go back even further than that. Maybe you're a an old black and white film type person. Maybe you want to watch something like the great Bogey and Bacall classic. Everybody comes to Rick's. Well, obviously, you don't know those movies by those titles. See, those, those were titles that were suggested, but then thankfully rejected for movies that did become classics. Hitchcock's was Psycho. No thanks. But that's, that's, that's the title that we know it at. Of course, Spielberg's was Back to the Future. And then the great Bogart and... Uh, Bergman, not, not Bacall. The great movie, Play It Again, Sam, was, of course, Casablanca. Much better, right? Much better titles, move, titles that, that we really, uh, really associate with. See, the thing about a title for a book, for a movie, for a story, it, it kind of points us in the direction we ought to be thinking. It, it, it's what we associate with. It tells us what, what, what this is all going to be about. It cues our brains to look for specific things. It kind of cues us to what, 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 is, what are the details that we ought to be paying attention to. The Bible does the exact same thing. If you have your Bible, whatever you're using, go ahead and open your Bible to Luke chapter 15. 
In Luke chapter 15, you probably see in your Bible three different sections. The third section, you probably have the title over that section, the parable of the prodigal son. The title itself, again, the title, not, of course, not provided by the Holy Spirit, the title provided by the publisher of, that, of your particular Bible, points us to focus on, of course, the son. Well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, if, if it were all up to me, I wouldn't call this the parable of the prodigal son. The more I've studied this, the more I've read this parable over and over in my life, the more I think I would name this the parable of the prodigal father. Because if anyone is wasteful, if anyone is reckless, if anyone is extravagant in this parable, it is the father. Now, as we look at this parable, the father takes center stage. The father even dominates the, every scene when he's not on center stage, if, if you will. It is the father's love, it's the father's compassion, it's the father's mercy and tenderness that really is the focus of all of this. The, the, the two sons are supporting characters. They're vivid contrasts to who the father really is. So if we're going to call anyone prodigal, it would be the father. Now, is that shocking? Maybe. We don't associate that term with the Father. But as we look through this parable, I want you to consider the definition really of the word prodigal. The word comes to us from the Greek word asotos. And it comes from verse 13 where it says the son went off into wild living or reckless living, whatever your translation might say. And when we look at that word, we look at that term from a biblical perspective, this is a shot from Bible Hub, uh, from BibleHub.com. And you can see some of the words that are used here, the word wastefully, the word extravagantly, the word profligate, all words that really define what this term prodigal or the word asotos really means. But if we're even going to look just for a modern day definition, we could look at, at dictionary.com. And you could see the same type definitions, wastefully or recklessly extravagant, giving or yielding profusely, lavish, lavish uh, lavishly abundant. Uh, again, profuse, the idea of a person, person who spends or has spent his or her money or substance with wasteful extravagance. Those are the terms that really define what prodigal means it's terms that when we look at this, it's flamboyant, extravagant, lavish. It is unrestrained, profligate, copious, words I don't even use. But those are the words that really describe what prodigal truly means. And as we examine this greatest father, I think literature has ever given us. As we, as we examine this father we'll see that the word prodigal describes the father way more than it describes the sons. See, Jesus' parable that, 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 that he gives, in fact, all three of these parables, are, a, are given in response to the Pharisees' accusations or the Pharisees' problem that they have with Jesus that he spends time with sinners. So Jesus uses these parables to amplify, maybe, what, what in fact is the entire storyline of the whole Bible. It is the incredible love. It is the unrestrained grace and mercy that God has for his people. 
And it's even more impactful when we realize this is a story told by Jesus, who's named Emmanuel, who is named God with us. This is God in the flesh telling this story about who God is. See, Jesus uses this to tell us a story about God more than he does about these two sons. See, we ask, what is God like? How do we get to know who God is? How do we define who God is? Well, look at the Father in this parable. We just sang, behold our God. Behold our God. He's right here in this parable. He's right here. Jesus paints this picture for us. And in, in this picture, what we see is what God is doing for us. will do through Jesus what he continues to do in our lives. We know it, it will eventually mean the cross, but it doesn't even end there. It, it, it continues to us to this very day. Is that wasteful? Is that lavish? Is it extravagant? Is it excessive? Yes, it is, especially when you consider who we are. And how we often respond to what God has done for us. What do we do to deserve this prodigal act of grace and mercy? Nothing. That defines prodigal. See, we need love. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation more than we need the air that we breathe. More than we need the food that we eat. And God provides that for us in spite of who we are. That is prodigal defined. And Jesus will use this, pro, this parable to introduce us to a greater understanding of who God the Father is, who our Father really is. So today, as, 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 as we celebrate fathers, let's truly celebrate this great prodigal father. And I want us to look at these evidences that, that really show that, that it is God, who's, who, or this father, who, is, who meets the definition of prodigal. In this parable, see the drama has barely even begun when we see the first evidence of this father being really the prodigal. We see this father is extravagantly approachable. See, look at chapter 15, verse 11. Chapter 15, verse 11 begins with a certain man had two sons. Notice it does not say a certain man had a brother and a father. The father is the focus right off the bat. This is about the father. He says, this certain man has two sons. And then we have, to, we have to wonder, what sort of man must he be that his son has the courage to go to him with his request here in verse 12. Verse 12 says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. But see, you have to think, the son must have known how the father was going to answer. He must have known that this man that is his father is such a good man that he can take this ridiculous approach to him and not be rebuked and not be slapped down. But he goes to his father and he requests for his inheritance. But what does he do? He keeps his real agenda hidden. He doesn't say, give me my share of the inheritance so I can go off and live like a crazy person. He doesn't say that. That, that's, his, that's his plan, but he doesn't share that with his father. And we have to wonder, what would make this son want to leave in the first place? It seems like he has a pretty good life. The father's immediate response there in verse, the second half of verse 12 says, so he distributed the assets to him. There doesn't seem to be a hint of harshness. There doesn't see, seem to be any sort of 
living under a dictatorship. The, the image that we get is this father was benevolent to his sons. That they were allowed to live in, in his riches and have a pretty good life. Now, let's parallel that to us. Think about what we have, our inheritance, if, if you will, from our, from our father. God gives us each so many blessings of life. Just the, again, the air that we breathe, the job that we have, the beauty of creation around us. And God says, here, take this, live life and just enjoy it. But there's one caveat for us. Just remember that these are gifts and honor the giver of these gifts. But see, that's the problem. That's the problem with this younger son. And that tends to be our problem. We want to claim those blessings as our own. We want to say, we, we want to live in this lie of the things that I have, I have achieved from my own creativity. I have achieved from my own, uh, my own work, my own hard, hard work, my own desire, my own drive. What, what we see in this son is the, the, the same thing with us. What, 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 what it's hard for us to realize is that we couldn't breathe a breath. We couldn't earn a dime if it wasn't for our father blessing us. This son has the audacity to go to his father and say, give me what's mine. And, and what he doesn't say, but he will say later to the older son, has to kind of resonate already in this scene. He says, all that I have is yours. The son seems to have a pretty good life. But he wants what he wants. And we sometimes do the same thing. We, we want to live our own lives. We want to prove ourselves, maybe even to ourselves, we want to be the one thing that we can never be. We want to be the God over our own lives. But there's, there even seems to be more to it than that with this son. It seems like maybe he wanted to get out because what he could not emulate, he had to eliminate. That's a great line. It's not from me. I stole that from the late theologian John Lloyd Ogilvy. But it's a great line. He couldn't emulate his father, so he had to eliminate. In his eyes, he could never live up to what his father was. He wanted to go live how he wanted to live. He didn't want to live to his father's standard. He wanted to go live in his way. He thought, I'd rather do it myself, go live by myself, than live by his rules. Now, there's a basic word for that, and that word is sin. It's that desire to be independent of God. It's that desire to live how I want to live, to do what I want to do, to separate myself from having to follow God's rules, if you will. So the son says in his mind, I can't live up. So he says, I'll live elsewhere. He says, I, I, I can't be the, I, I can't live like this man wants me to live. So I am out of here. This is not the life I want to live. So he decides to ask for his inheritance. Now, it's here where we get to this second evidence, if, if you will, of the father being the prodigal. We see the evidence of prodigal love in the father's, what I call his reckless release. It's hard for me to think about this, really, as a dad, as a father. But what does the father do? He let him go. Can, can you imagine, a parent, can you imagine that? Can you just, can you imagine just saying, your child comes to you with this, with this request, which, as we all, as you probably all heard, what, what he's basically at telling his father is, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. And the father, because of his love for his son, because of his concern for his son, 
doesn't respond with the obvious and say, I'm still alive, get out of my face and send the kid to his room or whatever. He just, he says, okay, take it. Take it and go. And you can almost, you, you can imagine the heartbreak. You can imagine the, the questions left unasked, the statements left unsaid as the father watches his son take off down the road and walk away. And I, you have to ask yourself this question. Does the son know that he's breaking his father's heart? But be careful before you answer that. Because thinking of all the symbology here, answering that question requires that we dig a little bit deeper and we get a little bit personal. Because if, if, if we're, if we're going to be quick like I am, I'll be straight with you. I, when I ask this, did he, know he had, I, I, did he know he's breaking his father's heart? My response is he had to know. But then the question we have to ask is, do we know? Do we know that when we walk away from God, when we reject God's law for our lives, when we decide we want to do what he did and go live how we want to live, do we know that we're breaking God's heart? See, the son leaves and he, and he goes off into what is described in many, in many translations as the far country. When we turn our backs on God, when we resist God, when we refuse to follow God, we go into a far country of our own. We find ourselves, some of us, maybe it is that we pack up our share of the inheritance, if you will, and just leave. And we just turn our backs on God. Others leave in a thousand little ways. And find themselves in in. Even if, whether it's the blatant leaving or just the, the gradual leaving, we find ourselves in a life that is fractured from God. See, this far country is the realm of rebellion. It's, it's the place that we, we want to be because we want what we want. It's, it may be, again, it may be a total rejection of faith, but it may just be that our relationships, our priorities, our distractions just get us to where we just slowly drift away from God. Either way, they're both aspects of those who have chosen to go live in the land of I'm going to do this myself. See, the far country comes in many forms. It's easy to look at this younger son and identify him with the bad people. To look at the, to, to say this is a representative of the drunks, the addicts, the people who are just the bad people. Because it's, they're, 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 those are so easy to identify in this son. The son leaves with a, a very decisive departure. For many of us, though, it isn't that blatant. It isn't those bad people, those bad things. Too often for many of us, it's just that we drift into the far country. And we find ourselves no longer at home with God. I want you to consider two people. Consider the person who's living on the streets, the person who has given their lives over to drugs, given their lives over to alcohol or some other addiction, has, has severed relationships with family and friends and, and, and a job and is at the bottom of life. And compare that to the person who's at the top of life, who has success, who has money, who has wealth, who has attained and still has no need for God. Both, both are in the far country still. 
both have made a home away from God. We do, we do that when we find anything to fill the place that should be reserved for God. See, this son didn't leave for a wild weekend on the town. This son, in his mind, he had left the father for good. He was going to begin a new life. He was going to go live life the way he chose to live. It's easy for us to leave this as his story. But too often this hits home, doesn't it? Too often we can see ourselves in this son. Too many of us have rejected the great blessings of being in our father's house, if you will, and are living in a frantic search for meaning, for purpose, for definition. And we find ourselves going off into this far country when we try and, and fill that void with anything but God. And God says, if you choose to do that, I will allow you to do that. Now, the third evidence of the father truly being the prodigal is a little bit more nuanced in this. And I never really thought about it until I began to study this through a little bit more. What, one thing we notice here is the father, once the son leaves, the, the, the father does not send a rescue team. The father does not send servants to go find the son. The father exhibits Profligate patience. So I had to use the word profligate because I never used it before. So, but, but he shows excessive is what that is. He shows excessive patience with the sun drifting away. Now the sun is off in the far country. And what he finds is that this far country will take everything from you that it can get. The sun finds himself in a situation where his resources have been depleted. And then famine hits. Famine hits and he finds himself without money, without friends, with no one to turn to. And it seems like he's reached the bottom. But it, as, as you read through the, the parable, what you find is that it just gets worse and worse for him. It says that he joins himself as a hired servant to a, to a local person. The literal word there is that he pinned himself. He basically just said, I'm here and I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be your hired servant. Now, there's more to that even than, than we see in the English text. The actual Greek word there for hired servant is mystheos. He's a day laborer. He, he's not even a, a, a regular, he's not a doulos, as we see that, that word sometimes, the bond servant. He's at the lowest rung of the servanthood ladder. He was hungry enough to surrender his dignity for this freedom. He was hungry enough to eat the carob pods, some translations say, that the pigs had rejected. He has reached rock bottom. He, has, he left home for this freedom. Now he finds how shallow and how pathetic this freedom can really be. He's a disgrace. In the words that Jesus uses in this parable would, would, would rattle the teeth of any Jew listening. For this guy, to, to, as, as a Jewish son from a wealthy family, to pin himself as a hired servant, as a mystheos to a, to a local person, then to feed the pigs and then to go even lower and to eat what the pigs rejected. He's a disgrace. But then 
we come to verse 17. And what we have in verse 17 is, again, something I've stolen from another author. I call this the aha moment. Look at what verse 17 says. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. He came to himself. That word literally means that he saw himself as he truly was. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's a hard thing to take a real look at ourselves, to look in the mirror and see who we really and truly are. It's not easy to take an honest look at ourselves, especially when we know we're in this far country. It's, it's frightening for me to face the real me sometimes. And that's what this son does. He comes face to face with the reality of what he's done. And often, just like what happened to him, it does take, it takes a tragedy. It takes reaching a low spot in life. It takes a disintegration of all those walls of, of self-satisfaction that we've built up. And then we can really see who we really are. And it implies that we see ourselves. It implies that, that, that we see ourselves for what we are, see ourselves for what we're becoming, for what we have been. And that we see ourselves in this horrible place without the Father. And that's where the Son is. That's, that's what He comes to at this point. And He realizes, why am I doing this? Why have I chosen this? You know, I, I, I hear often people ask the question, do you think God sends difficulties to our lives? And I, I think, I guess my answer to that is, why would he? Life sends enough. Life sends enough difficulties our way. And it's when we're in these times, when, we, when we're at those, those points where we find ourselves coming face to face with who we really are and whatever our situation is, we, we, we sometimes cry out to God. We say, what's the meaning of this, God? Why is this happening to me? And like this father, God sits patiently and waits for us to come to the realization that our question should be, is what's the meaning in this for me, God? What can I learn from this? How can I make my relationship with you better because of this situation? And it is at this point where we come to our senses and we realize how much better things could be. Look at what the son says there in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? Here I am dying of hunger. Verse 18, he says, I'll get up. I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't even deserve the title. Make me like one of your hired workers. See, loneliness apart from the father sets in. The realization of that life without the Father is no life at all. Scottish author Laura Marney has said this, this. This is her quote. No matter who you are or where you are, instinct tells you to go home. Motive doesn't really matter. It's instinct. You know you can go home. Hunger is what drove the sun. For us, it's, it's usually a hunger that no food can satisfy. It's the desire to be back with the Father. It's a desire to realize that we need, when we really see ourselves, it's a, this desire to, to, to know that things can be better if I just return to my Father. And now the attention shifts back to the Father. 
as the attention shifts back to the father, the son has made this decision. He gets up and he heads back home. We find the father wastefully waiting. What's the father doing? Look in verse 20. Verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. Don't miss this. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. Do you see that? The father saw him from a long way off. Now, you're not going to see something from a long way off unless you're looking for it in the first place. Now, I, I, don't, think, I don't think the language here insinuates to us that, 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 that what, we're hearing, what we're seeing here is a coincidence. I think what we're to take is the father spent hours, spent days looking off into the distance, waiting, watching to see if that son would return. Why would he do that? Because he never gave up hope that that son would return. Now, continue there in, in, in verse 20. Think about, think about what we're about to see here. Behold our God. This is God. The rest of verse 20 says this. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. Don't, whatever you think of God, whatever you think of fathers, whatever you think of being an ideal father, look at this man. Do not miss this. He runs to the father in his culture. It was, it was, it was reprehensible for an older man to run. Aristotle says great men never run in public. But to this father, when he sees his son, it's like a starter's pistol going off. And he takes off running to his son. There's no way you're going to keep him from his son when he sees him coming. He can't run fast enough to get there. I'll tell you what, what I take from this, too, is I, I think the father knows two things here. I think the father, in his waiting, in his watching, has known that if the son does come back, he's probably not, because of his immaturity, because of the character that he has seen in his son, he knows he's probably not going to come back driving a big Cadillac as a successful businessman, if you will. He has to know that if my son comes home, it's probably going to be as a failure. It's probably going to be because he has nowhere else to go. But then he also knows, number two, that the whole town isn't going to be ready to accept his son. See, the, the whole town has to know what happened. And the whole town has to know this kid was a punk. You never should have given him his inheritance in the first place. And, and the father has to know that if this son does come back, this whole town isn't going to be very accepting. The, the, what, what they would think is he probably deserves death. So what does the father do? He runs to the son. Behold our God. That's the picture Jesus paints for us. See, our God runs to us. Our return, our move, our step toward God unleashes this incredible infinite love uh, this, this show of infinite love, this response that only God can offer. He runs to us. What, what, a, what an incredible progression of lavish love. And you notice too, look at verse 21. You notice the son doesn't get to give his speech. Remember he said, I had it all worked out. Then he said, verse 21, the son said to him, <clears throat> you can just imagine the son too, 
seeing his father coming, he's going, I'm getting ready. I'm going to give it. Here it comes. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What does he not get to? He never gets to the hired servant part. And maybe it is that he just leaves it out because maybe he comes to the realization that there's no way I can ever earn my way back into my father's good graces. But maybe it is that the father just cuts him off because the son comes and he, he gives that little part of the speech. But what we see is a father who doesn't, doesn't reserve his love. He doesn't hold off until the son has some sort of act of restitution. He doesn't look at the son and keep him at arm's distance until he, he proves himself to be good enough. He just runs to his son and he hugs him and he kisses him. This is the gospel. This is a succinct picture of the gospel. This is it in a nutshell. This is who God is. This is who God has always been. We could go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, where God says to the people, and he says, And when my people who hear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. We could look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, where God says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God has always been a God who waits for his people to come and turn to him. And he says, when you look for me, I am right here. I'll always be right here. That's the picture Jesus paints with this father. When we decide to make that move toward God, the father's invitation is simple. It's just come home. Come home. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been hugged and kissed by God? I mean, figuratively, have you ever been embraced? Have you ever seen God run to you and embrace you and love you? I have. Times when I've made dumb choices. Times when I've tried to live life my way. And, and have fortunately had that aha moment. I have seen and felt figuratively, figuratively God's arms around me, God embracing me and hugging me and welcoming me home. I have, and I'm sure you have, at some point in life experienced a running God. But it doesn't end there. Like they'd say on TV, but wait, there's more. Because not only does the Father welcome the Son home, because the son is coming home, he's ready to bless the son. He's ready to, to, to pour out more of this lavish love. Look at what he says. When, and imagine first, though, think about this fact. This is a rich guy with a lot of servants. Imagine when he takes off running down the road. It seems like probably some of the servants would go, well, we got to keep up. We got to follow him. We got to know where he's going. He can't just leave. So maybe these servants are running along trying to keep up with the old guy's burst of energy right here. But they're probably really shocked when they hear these commands. In verse 22, the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Who has the best robe in the house? The father probably has the best robe. See, this, this could mean one of about three different things. It could be the father's robe that he says, bring out and put my robe on my son. It could be that this is a robe that they've kept for, their, for, a, for a guest, for, for a special guest that is... Uh, set apart to show honor to a, to a guest, guest. But what it also could be is it could be that they never cleaned out the kid's room. And maybe this is his best robe. And this is bring out my son's robe to, to let him know he is a son. This is such a touching scene. 
in, in whatever way you look at it. It's such a touching moment, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, <clears throat> he says, put a ring on his finger. This is the signet ring. This is the, this is the sign of familial authority. This is him saying, you are not a stranger. You're, you're my son. You're always welcome in this home because you are a blood relative. You are my son. Then the father looks down and he notices the son's bare feet. And he says, and bring sandals. Continuing in that passage, he says, bring sandals and put them on his feet. The, the bare feet would be a sign of the, the slavery into which the son has essentially fallen. And the father says, you're no slave. You're my son. And he welcomes him home, but he doesn't even stop there. Going on in verse 20, 22, or 23, he says, Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Why the fattened calf? Because he invited the whole town. That's, the fattened calf had enough meat for everybody. He doesn't just want this to be a family celebration. He wants it to be the household. But he wants everyone to join in this celebration. He wants everyone to celebrate with him that his son, who he thought was dead, is here. The son has returned. The son came to himself and came home. Behold our God. There he is right there. Now, this is why I had Brock read from the parable before this. The parable of the lost coin. Consider both endings here. Look in verse chapter 15, verse 7. This is after the, the man has found his sheep. He says, I tell you the truth. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Then the parable of the lost coin. I tell you in the same way, verse 15 I'm sorry, verse 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Behold our God. That's, this is God rejoicing. I've looked at several translations. Uh, Brock read from one translation. There's a different translation on the screen. I've got a different translation. I've looked at several. They all say there is joy in the presence of God's angels. I believe that's God rejoicing. I believe that's the Father throwing this celebration because the one that is gone is home. That's prodigal. To know that we can give our God that kind of joy is incredible. And I wish this parable ended right here. But we have to deal with this. We know this parable points the finger at the Pharisees who have rejected God for their own self-righteousness. <clears throat> so we're introduced now at the end of this parable and we have to deal with this uneasy ending because we read on, we find out the older brother has distanced himself from the father just as much as the younger son. What we see is that the older son hears the celebration, hears the noise, and he comes in from the field where he's been diligently working. And he asks what the deal is, and they sit the servant tells him that your, your brother's back. But the older brother refuses to go in. 
And look at the exchange he has with his father here in verse 28. Verse 28, he says, it says, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he is devout, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. With this statement, we see a couple of things with this son. He considers himself a slave. That which the younger son was ready to become, the older son already thought he was. He says, I've been, out, I've been a slave. I've been doing all the right things. I've been working for you, and you've never given me anything. And notice what he says, the second thing. He says, you've never given me even a goat to celebrate with my friends. He doesn't want anything to do with the father and those people. He doesn't want anything to do with, with the father and his friends in this household. He says, I wanted something for myself, and you never even gave me that. And the father's incredible response is seen here in verse 31. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. Now, that's where it ends. But I want to submit to you this morning that I believe Jesus is doing something intentional with this. The method Jesus uses in this story is, was a very common method in his day. It, it's called the chiastic storytelling. It's, it's a chiastic method that something happens and then there's a response to it. Then something happens again and there's, a, there's another response to it. This story leaves something open. It's almost like if you consider the, uh, like the, 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 the scale, the music scale, we sing, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti. And if I don't finish, you're like going, do the last thing. you got to do the dough at the end, right? That's what, that's what happens with this parable. Jesus leaves it unfinished. He says, he, he, gives, this, he gives this picture, he gives this, this account of the brother. And we know what happens with the younger brother. The younger brother's gone off and, he's, and then he's come back and he's admitted he was lost. And he has an account or a, a confrontation with his father and it ends. Well, then the younger brother's upset and he has the confrontation with his father. But it doesn't end. See, the older brother, the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother. See, I, I believe all of us have a little bit of the younger brother and a little bit of the older brother in us. There are some of us, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, there are some who just walk away and say, I'm taking what's mine. I don't need God's rules. But then I think maybe in a setting like this, a setting with church people, with Christians. Maybe we can relate to the older brother a little bit more sometime. And we do all the right things. I'm there all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm in worship when I'm supposed to be. I go to class. I do all the right stuff. But we have these wounds maybe from other younger siblings, if you will. Where our service to God and our devotion to God has become rote has become just this thing we do. We're checking all the boxes and there's no real love for the Father. There's no real appreciation of the home that we have with the Father. So what's missing here at the end? Because that's the point Jesus leaves out. 
And he leaves that for his listeners to decide. He leaves that for the Pharisees. The Pharisees have to figure out at this point that they're the older brother. That they're the ones who in their minds have always been there for God, have always done the right thing. Yet they have no love for those other brothers and sisters, those other Jews who have turned to Jesus, who have turned to follow Jesus. They, 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 have, they have no desire to be part of the celebration that more and more are coming to know who Jesus is. So how does it end? How do we come to the conclusion to reconcile this story? Well, if you were to add a verse or two to the end of this, the way this could end is so, therefore, the older brother attacked his father and beat him and scourged him and drug him off to a place of public execution. See, the reality of this is that the way this parable technically really ends is with the Father, with God in the flesh, hanging on a cross. Behold our God. Behold the man upon the tree. My sin upon his shoulders. Now see, we call this, we know this as the parable of the prodigal son. But instead of focusing on the behavior of the son, let's focus on this father. Let's focus on the, focus on the extravagant love this father shows. Not to just the younger son, but to the older son because he tells him everything I have is yours. That, that is an open invitation. He's telling the older son, please stay, please be a part of this. The father isn't a bad person. He's not prodigal like we think of the term, but he is extravagant in his love to both sons. He does offer more than would ever be expected. He loves him. He, he loves both sons, not because of what they are, but because of who he is. Do you see what Jesus is doing with this? He's showing us a picture. He's communicating, communicating to every single person who ever wanted to take one step toward God. To let us know that God doesn't just sit back and wait. God doesn't just, God's not stand out. When we make that move toward God, He runs to us and He hugs us and He embraces us and He kisses us and He welcomes us and He bestows all these great gifts on. He doesn't wait until we're good enough. The reason that we can even make that turn to God, the reason we can even ask for forgiveness is because we know who God is. We know that He is this great father. So as you celebrate your Father's Day today, I want to encourage you to reflect for just a moment on this father. Jesus paints this picture for us to show us how much love our Father has for us. No matter what we've done, no matter where we are, our Father's waiting and watching for us to turn and come home. Whatever coming home means to you, your Father's waiting and He's ready to run to you. If there's anything that we can do for you, again, use the comment section below on either, whatever, however you're watching this, or reach out to us 
give us a phone call, send us an email through the website, whatever you need to do. But more than anything, know that God's reaching out to you. God is waiting for you. God's waiting to embrace you and love you and welcome you back home. Or maybe what welcome you home for the first time. Take care of yourselves. Be back with us again at 6 o'clock. Lord willing, we'll see you all July 5th. Take care of yourselves and God bless.